everybody. Welcome to Story Collider's Stories of COVID-19. If you've been listening to Story Collider for a while, you know that for the past decade, we have brought you hundreds of true personal stories about how science has affected our lives. Since March, science has been affecting all of our lives in a big way, in the form of COVID-19. So over the next few months, we'll be presenting this very special series of stories centered around the pandemic. Story Collider team has spent the last few months gathering and producing stories from all across the spectrum of experience of this global event. These stories come from all across the United States, from Canada, Brazil, India, France, and the UK. And while, of course, these are still true personal stories about science as we have always shared with you, they're different from anything that we've shared with you before. First of all, because we're obviously no longer recording our stories at live events. We're improvising studio recordings remotely in our storytellers' homes, asking them to shut themselves in walk-in closets or huddle under blankets to get podcast-quality sound for all of you, our listeners, while we monitor the audio remotely from our screens. In some cases, we're only able to get a smartphone-quality recording, so we'll ask for your patience and understanding with that. But these stories are also different in another crucial way. They are fresher than any stories we've ever recorded before. These storytellers have taken on the difficult task of rapidly processing very recent, sometimes traumatic events in their lives in order to make them into stories that can be shared with all of you. These stories are raw. Some of them are intense, packed with genuine emotion. Some of them capture small moments of beauty, tragedy, and comedy that have happened over these past few months. And together, they all paint a vibrant, powerful, and I think hopeful picture of humanity during this time. And because so many of us right now are struggling with what the pandemic will mean for our daily lives and our future, we're also going to include with each episode an interview with a relevant expert who can help us connect these personal stories to the bigger picture of the pandemic's impact on our culture and society. Each of these episodes will be in two parts, running Friday and Monday. The first part of each episode will contain a story and an interview, and the second part, two more stories on the theme. So... Without any further ado, our series begins at the very center of the beginning of the pandemic in the United States, in New York City, with the theme, Contact. Our first story is from New York City nurse and performer Harvey Katz. It was recorded in the living room of his apartment in Brooklyn, New York. March feels like a million years ago. And not because time flies, but because time is a social construct and my social distancing game is like super strong these days. So like four billion years ago in early March, we had our first and maybe our last ever family vacation. We went to Disney World. We touched handrails. We stood in long lines of crowds that collectively sighed in long exhales. Their hot breath on my neck was like a nice breeze. We didn't know that It's a Small World was a factual statement and not just the mutterings of animatronic optimists. People kept talking about this virus in China, and I thought they were all hypochondriacs. The flu, I kept saying. Worry about the flu. I took a chill pill and ate a Pluto-themed veggie dog that passed through no less than seven hands before entering directly into my mouth. Hands, hot dog, mouth. That sounds ludicrous and straight-up reckless now. Less than two weeks later, I was pulling the acrylic nail off a woman who was gasping for breath. The oximeters can't get a good reading through the fake nails, so I was in a near panic and using my own nails to pry off one of hers. 
I'm a brand new nurse, and this was two months into my employment at my very first nursing job straight out of nursing school. So I was, and I still am, living and dying by the numbers because, well, instinct is not instant. So that nail had to go. She was also in liver failure, which has this intoxifying effect on the body. So she kept ripping off this BiPAP mask that was pushing air into her wrecked lungs, and then she was subsequently suffocating on repeat. Her oxygen monitors would alarm every 10 minutes or so, and so I'd have to race into the room, but not before I went through this arduous process of putting on my PPE. And you could put on PPE a million times, and it's still a clumsy process when you're in a rush. Your hands become these dumb, worthless worthless blocks with performance anxiety while someone on the other side of a windowless door just slips into an oxygen-deprived blackout and hurries towards the light. You have to resist the urge to just run into the room and start mouth-to-mouthing a stranger with a potentially deadly infection. The floor isn't lava, but the air is. I kept thinking about people who are drowning whose panic ends up killing the person trying to save them, which in turn kills them both. Alarm, run, PPE, reoxygenate, leave, alarm, PPE, over and over for hours. This was my first COVID patient. All I could think was, oh my God, we are not prepared. This is not okay. We are not okay. There's no way I'm going to be able to do this day after day. That morning was the last time I would kiss my wife for months. I wish I would have known that and I would have made it a kiss that could sustain us for a while. But it was just a... Have a good day. I'll come home and kiss you later, kiss. That night I slept on the living room floor. A few days later, I moved out of my house and into my friend's empty apartment. My wife is immunocompromised, but she's also my sounding board, my therapist, my person, my little spoon, the cutest of the cutlery. I'd been leaning on her support extra hard recently because in the second, then the third, then the fourth opinion of my doctor's, I may or may not have cancer, and the mystery was only going to be solved by a surgery booked for April 10th. It was daunting to think about going through this without her. It was heartbreaking to think about her going through this alone. I packed for a week, not knowing I'd be gone for nearly three months. Right after that patient with a fake nail, I got transferred to the ICU, and I was a nurse there as the first wave of COVID grew and crested in New York City. We took care of the sickest patients in the hospital. It was the closest I will hope I will ever get to living in a sci-fi movie. Every patient had COVID. Every patient was being kept alive by machines, machines that fed the milky formulations and vasoconstrictors through their IV lines, machines that pushed air into their lungs, bags that collected less and less urine each day as their kidneys failed. Patients were given a 20% chance of survival, but I suspect that number was elevated. We wore PPE even in the hallways. Between the gowns and the goggles and the masks, it was hot and disorienting. Every shift was like preparing for a wrestling weigh-in. By the end of it, I had a raging headache and I couldn't stand up without spinning. There's this level of intimacy between a patient in the ICU and a nurse that's unreproducible in any other part of my life. They're totally and completely dependent on you. You know more about their bodies than their mama. You know more about their bodies than they do. You know more about their bodies than you know about your own body. And there were no visitors allowed in the hospital at this time, so I made sure that I spoke to them extra kindly, even though they were sedated, because you never know what might get through, and I always took a minute to hold their hands and tell them they hadn't been abandoned. Like I said, I'm a new nurse, better at caring than curing at this point in my career, and my love language has always been access service. At this point in the COVID story, caring was about all we could do, but every interaction, every act 
of service with the patient put us at great risk and was discouraged by my superiors. At this point in the COVID story, caring was about all we could do, but every action, every act of service with the patient would put us at great risk and was discouraged by my superiors. So I would sneak into the rooms under the guise of fixing an IV, and I'd rearrange their swollen limbs and linger there for just an extra minute with my hand on their forearms. I did it for the both of us. There was no other human touch at this time for me other than that between me and my patients. Even between the healthcare workers, there was no high fives, no hugs. All facial expressions were hidden behind masks. It was bizarre and cold. I felt the need to connect to my patients to reconfirm that this was all real. Beyond the physical acts of tending to their body as it lived on separated from their consciousness, there's a pact we make to fight for them while they can't advocate for themselves and to know and respect when their battle is over. You use IV drips, fentanyl, and propofol in pursuit of this painless amnesia. It is the least you can do. You watch their vital signs for any signal that the fog is thinning and they become alert to the true terror of their situation because what COVID does to a body can be horrific and most people just want to die in their sleep. And every one of my patients died. One of them was actively dying for hours. I watched him from the other side of the glass door riding the line between here and gone. He wouldn't let go until I went into his room and I held his hand. And then it happened really quickly. I wished them all well on their journey. Before I zipped up the body bags, I'd send them off with a safe travels because who knows what happens after the here and now. Newscasters were comparing COVID to a war. The hospital even gave us these stars from retired U.S. flags. War's not my jam, but the metaphor was fitting. I remember accounts from injured soldiers bawling over missing limbs, not because they were mourning their loss, but because it meant they couldn't return to the battlefield and their platoon would have to go on without them while they were left in the dark on the sidelines with all their feelings and without all that consuming distraction of survival. It seemed crazy to me then, but I, I came to identify my fear of getting sick, whether from COVID or cancer, as largely a fear of abandoning my post and it didn't seem so crazy anymore. When you wear all that PPE, you're no longer identifiable as an individual. People can barely see your face and your badge is covered, so you're recognizable only as a team member, a soldier, if you will, totally de-individualized. But outside the hospital, I became hyper-individualized as the gap between what I was experiencing expanded exponentially from what my friends were going through while they sheltered in place. Their version of the monster was loud and big. Its destruction made headlines and caused economic collapse. My version was this rhythmic beeping until it wasn't, and then it was just quiet. I visited my monster daily, and day by day it told me more about itself. My monster lay silently on surfaces until everything I owned became ours together. It's impossible to unsee what I saw with COVID. A couple weeks into it, I found myself ragged with the repeated trauma, and I found it difficult to connect to anybody but my fellow healthcare workers. But I couldn't live in this bubble alone because outside of the hospital, things were going badly. During this time, my dad fell off a ladder and broke his pelvis. An elderly relative I care for fell, and I left one shift one night to a voicemail saying she was in the emergency room. My wife was grieving the loss of our touch, and my doctor canceled my surgery. That surgery that would determine whether or not I had cancer, a disease that killed my mom and was now smoldering in the plasma of my dad. A fact I ironically found out in March at Disney, the happiest place on earth. The stress of not knowing was taking me to a level of distress I hadn't visited in my 40 years. Fortunately, the height of COVID in New York City was a pretty good time to be a nurse. Almost nobody said no to you. 
Your likeness was marketed as heroic, and any commercial that didn't feature a nurse was just a barbaric symbol of capitalism. Nurses. We could sell a Subaru to a Subaru salesman. That is to say, we had some pull. So towards the end of April, I called my doctor and I pleaded for her to please, please do my surgery as soon as possible. And because I was a nurse, aka a hero without a cape, she made special accommodations for me and was able to set up my surgery within that week. I was almost looking forward to it. That week had been my worst one yet. In my straw that broke the camel's back moment, that elderly relative who I cared for dismissed my pleas for her to be careful, saying, there are worse ways to die. And then I flew into a rage, challenging her to name one. And then at that very moment, I realized the level of trauma I had been experiencing. That night, I took a paper cup filled with whiskey to Walgreens, drank it all, outstretched my arm into a shelf of their seasonal goods aisle, and emptied the entirety of their 70% off Easter candy selection into my cart. That night, I drank Cadbury mini-eggs straight from the carton, what I now refer to as my Fiona Gallagher total breakdown moment. And you know you're having a shitty go at it when surgery is the highlight of your month, but I think I just needed to be cared for. I needed to be the patient. I needed someone to take on all the tasks of being in a body for a few hours so I could just sleep off the reality of being a human at this time. Just before I was being led to the operating room, I asked to use the bathroom one more time, and the doctor said, I mean, we're going to put a catheter in you, so go if you'd like to, but no need to do it on our behalf. And instead of being horrified, it just sounded like luxury. Imagine that. They even pee for you in this place. Laying on the operating table with my arms tied down and useless, a nurse rubbed my head so kindly. Touch, touch, touch. The anesthesiologist told me his plan. Fentanyl, then propofol just like what I gave my patients, the promise of analgesia and the gift of amnesia. More people entered the room. The surgical team had at least eight people in it. I knew in just a matter of minutes I'd be naked and manipulated and entered and I'd be observed in a manner that in any other day would have me nauseous with the humiliation and shame. But butted up against the loneliness and fear I felt over the last month, it just felt so nice that so many people cared. And then I was asleep. Waking from surgery is like crawling through a sweet, soft marshmallow, then realizing it's in a fire. The nurse asked me if I was in pain and then pushed those magical opiates into my veins. The doctor told me all went well and that she was 90% sure I didn't have cancer and I could leave whenever I was ready. I didn't know how to tell her. I didn't want to leave this place where human touch still existed and they take away your pain and they tell you they're 90% sure you're going to be okay. was Harvey Katz. Harvey is a nurse living and working in Brooklyn, New York, and one of the hosts and creators of Take Two Storytelling, a monthly storytelling show and podcast. To check out photos and images that our storytellers have provided from their stories, as well as transcripts, you can check out storyclider.org. We've got a photo of Harvey in his full PPE there. Before we move on to the interview portion of this episode, I want to let everyone know that as this current series airs, we at StoryClider are hard at work on our second series of COVID stories. So if listening to these episodes is generating ideas for you about your own story from this time, get in touch. Send us an email at stories at storyclider.org or fill out the pitch form on our website. For these next few months, we will be actively looking for new stories for this next series. 
And if you're so inclined, you can also check out our live shows on storyclider.org. We have a new live show about every week, including tonight, as well as science story slams, where you can put your name in the virtual hat for a chance to be invited on screen and share your story. And finally, if you're looking to develop a new skill during this time or find a storytelling community to share and workshop your stories with, I highly recommend signing up for one of our online classes. You can find out more about those and all of these things at storyclider.org. And now back to our show. Harvey's story and many of the stories coming later in the series really made me think about the importance of physical comfort, of physical contact with the people that we love. My younger brother, Dan, is one of the most important people in my life. He works for the health department in West Virginia, and because of that, we didn't get to see each other for the first six months of the pandemic due to his level of risk of exposure. When I finally saw him on Labor Day weekend after he tested negative, he became the first person I'd hugged in six months other than my husband and housemate. And I was really stunned how hard it was to let go and that I actually started crying. I think I had missed that connection even more deeply than I'd realized, and deep down a part of me had wondered if I would ever get to hug him again. I wanted to explore this topic a little further to try to understand the power of physical comfort and connection. So I sat down with social scientist Casley Killam, who has written about this for Scientific American and Psychology Today and dedicated much of her career to the study of loneliness. Hey, Casley, welcome to the Story Collider podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Erin. I'm really excited to talk to you about a theme that's been threaded through several of the stories in our COVID-19 series, which is loneliness, and more specifically, the loss of physical comfort and the loneliness that that creates. So <laughs> in some of the stories in our series, our storytellers are talking about their experience of the loss of physical comfort as a result of this pandemic. So what kind of impact does the loss of physical comfort have on a person? Why is physical comfort specifically important? Yeah, it's a, such a great question. You know, social relationships in general are a really important ingredient for our health and well-being. In fact, decades of research uh, have shown that social relationships is one of the strongest predictors of long-term health outcomes, even things like mortality risk. And physical touch is an important part of that. So a few years ago, I wrote an article called A Hug a Day Keeps the Doctor Away. And in this article, I shared a study where researchers um, essentially measured people's levels of social support using a survey. And then they interviewed them every night for two weeks to evaluate how often they had conflict with other people and also how often they hugged other people. Uh, and then the researchers infected them with the common cold virus. And what they found was really interesting. They found that regardless of how much conflict people had, those individuals who had a strong sense of social support and who hugged often developed less severe cold symptoms. And this isn't the only study that's shown this. So it's really interesting that there's all this data showing that hugs and physical touch in general can actually buffer against against illness and actually kind of strengthen our immune systems. So it's interesting during this time of COVID that, you know, physical contact with other people can be a way that uh, the coronavirus is transmitted. And yet at the same time, we know that physical touch and hugs 
can buffer against illness. So it's kind of this contradictory situation where we need to be physically apart for this particular infectious disease, but more generally, um, the social support that we get from physical touch can actually improve our health. Oh, man, what a catch-22. So in the absence of physical comfort, what can we do? Is there a substitute? That's a great question. I think, uh, first of all, the ideal is that, um, you know, for people to be spending time in quarantine pods with a few friends or family members or neighbors whom they trust. I think uh, ideally, you know, you choose a few people who you can be in a bubble with, who you know are are being careful um, so that you can hug them all you want. It is such a, such a nourishing ingredient. Um, but if that's not possible, then I would say at a minimum, people should make sure that they're getting the emotional support support they need. So it doesn't have to be physical to be beneficial. The psychological benefits of feeling like we're cared for and like other people are there for us when we need them, that can be really uh, influential in itself. So making sure that we're staying in touch with friends and family, using technology. There are also lots of great tools if you feel like you don't have a strong social network. The AARP offers different mutual aid groups where you can actually sign up to be part of a supportive community within your local neighborhood. There different friendship phone lines. For example, the Institute on Aging offers one. So there are definitely options if, if perhaps you don't live, um, you know, uh, near your family or, or something like that. Um, and then there's also kind of a little more, a little more unusual, but there are ways to kind of simulate the experience of physical touch. So there are body pillows, which wrap around <laughs> you in bed and kind of make you feel like someone's spooning you. I think there are hug t-shirts. Um, you could also try loving kindness meditation. So there are different ways like that that you might um, find fun to experiment with to see if you can get that that same sense. But overall, if you can spend time in a quarantine pod with people, that's ideal. Um, and at a minimum, make sure that you're getting that emotional and, and psychological support from friends and family. When we spoke prior to this interview, you said something really interesting. I had said to you, a lot of people are experiencing loneliness or the absence of physical comfort right now. And you pointed out to me that there are always a lot of people experiencing these things. And what's actually happening right now is that the rest of us are able to empathize with that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because people have really been talking about loneliness since the pandemic hit, but rates of loneliness have been high for years. This is actually mm. nothing new. A lot of people um, experience social isolation or feelings of loneliness. And in fact, there was a study that came out in January on data collected in 2019 that found that as many as two-thirds of Americans feel lonely on a regular basis. That's a lot of people. And that yeah. was before the <laughs> pandemic even hit. Um, and in particular, you know, certain groups of people are kind of more susceptible to loneliness. So older adults, also Gen Z and younger generations, people who live alone, people who are widowed. Um, so there are certain kind of risk factors that we can look at. And now because we're all experiencing isolation and just this very weird, stressful time we're going through, I think in, in kind of a beautiful way, we are empathizing with people who were experiencing this beforehand. Um, and so perhaps through this experience, we can have greater awareness and appreciation of the role that social relationships play in our well-being um, and really recognize that for isolated neighbors and community members, there's an opportunity there to reach out um, and really uh, connect with them. 
What's your sense of how people are doing right now? Are we seeing the impacts of increased loneliness manifesting in our society or are people adapting? It's a great question. So I actually just had an article come out on this topic today in Scientific American. So at the start of the pandemic, I was one of many people, many social scientists who were really worried that the loneliness epidemic could get even worse as a result of isolation and quarantines that we need to be doing for the pandemic. Um, and some of the early research that's come out on this topic has been really surprising and shown that levels of loneliness have not really changed on average. Um, and in fact, in some cases, people's sense of social and emotional support have increased slightly, wow. which is really surprising and fantastic. I'm, I'm thrilled yeah. to see some of this data come out. Now, that doesn't mean that at the individual level, some people are experiencing loneliness more acutely. That can absolutely be the case. It just means that on the population level, on average, it seems like the kind of social recession or, or terrible outcomes that we were expecting related to loneliness specifically don't seem to be happening. So I'm really optimistic that People are prioritizing connection in new ways. They have greater appreciation for their relationships. They're getting to know their neighbors for the first time. They're developing new habits around this. And I'm optimistic that um, we might benefit in the long term from that if we maintain those habits. Another thing to consider is that the pandemic could be going on for a long time more. And so just because the data so far is promising doesn't mean that it will continue to be. So we really need to be intentional about ensuring that we're staying socially connected during this time. Do you have any theories about how you think that this time of social distancing will impact us in the long term? You know, I am cautiously optimistic. <laughs> the data that's coming out on this so far does give me reason to hope, and I'm not alone in that. Um, but I also think that it it comes down to each and every one of us ensuring that in our own lives, we're really prioritizing social connection in whatever way is possible for us. Um, and that also, you know, that we start to really rethink the role that our communities play in our health. I think a lot is going on to kind of reimagine workplaces and schools and cities and buildings and things like this. And if in that process, we also include social well-being as an objective and say that, you know, as we're reinventing air systems and, and making places safer if we also think about how we can make our different institutions and organizations um, more socially connected, then that could be a really powerful outcome. And it's been a long time coming. I mean, loneliness has been around for a while, and we need to be uh, creating environments and, and systems around us that really support our social connections. And I think now, if we leverage this momentum, if we make the most of kind of this opportunity to reinvent the wheel, then I think it could be really powerful. And there's the potential for us to come out of this um, more socially connected and, and better off. Wow. It is, that is cautiously optimistic. I like to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else that I didn't ask you that I should have asked or anything that you want to add? I don't think so. I would just say that, you know, this is a really difficult time and um, certainly there's other data coming out about people's levels of anxiety or depression or things like that that are pretty scary. Um, so just ensuring that we're all taking care of ourselves, taking care of each other, staying socially connected. 
um, is going to be really important as, as we continue in the months and hopefully not years to come getting through this. But humanity is remarkably resistant. I've seen data after September 11, where people, you know, showed higher rates of love and teamwork and companionship and things like that. And so I think there is really an opportunity for us to come together through this experience and build stronger communities and stronger connections and, and really get through this uh, in a better place. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Casley. <laughs> thank you, Erin. Stay tuned on Monday for part two of this episode, which will feature two more stories on the theme of contact. Until then, the story quieter is so grateful for Harvey's story and for Casley for taking the time to chat with us. Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast series is produced by me, Erin Barker, with assistance from Story Collider's Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and our Operations Manager, Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The story featured in the first part of this episode was produced by me, Erin Barker. Our theme music was composed by Eva Gertz of the Fulton Street Music Group. Until Monday, this is Story Collider signing off. Stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask, love each other. Thanks for listening.